If you brought along a copy of the Bible, uh, turn to our Old Testament reading that Rose did. Great job, Rose. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Okay. So we've been going through the book of Exodus. This is the 12th sermon in the series. And we've seen the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves for centuries. And then God delivered them. And he destroyed their pursuers. And when they were in the wilderness, he took care of them. He guided them and he nurtured them. And then when we got to about seven chapters before this, we saw that Israel finally made it to this mountain that they had been headed toward the whole time. And while they were there, and this was about, this happened about a month before the event that Rose read to us in, in Exodus 32. While they were at this mountain, God said to Israel, will you marry me? He proposed. He proposed a covenant. He said, I, I will be your husband and you be my bride. And Israel accepted it. And God said, no, wait a minute. Um, if we're going to have this covenant relationship with each other, we've got to treat each other with loyalty. And he gives them his laws, the Ten Commandments. And he said, we've got to be faithful to one another. And Israel said, we'll do it. And God said, great. And so they had a wedding ceremony. And we looked at this about a month ago. And at that wedding ceremony, sort of like our weddings, they exchanged vows with each other. Um, they went through a ritual, sort of like we use giving and receiving of rings. There was blood that was given and received. And then just like in most of our wedding ceremonies, they then had a big party, a feast. They ate and they drank. And they were united to one another and they were in covenant relationship with one another. And as soon as all of that was over, Moses went farther up the mountain and he was in this intimate conversation with God where God was giving Moses instructions to build a tabernacle. Because just like in our weddings, the husband and the wife needed to live together. God wanted to live with Israel, not just be this God who's far off and rescues Israel, but this God that lives right in the midst of Israel. And so he's giving Moses the instructions for this tabernacle that would be right in the center of Israel, where Israel would experience an intimate relationship with God. Now, this is a very special house. Um, it's more special than your dream house, right? It's, it's where the God of the universe, the creator and redeemer of all things was going to meet with his people. And so for seven chapters, going on almost 40 days, God is laying out these architectural plans. Now, remember, the central plot line of the book, we've seen this in week after week, the central plot line of Exodus is that God is delivering his people to himself for the sake of the world. And all the way through the book, God's the one driving the story. God is leading Israel to this moment, this moment where Israel and God would have a wedding where they would be deeply related to one another and Israel would be able to get the two things they needed to actually live for the sake of the world. Not only did they need to be delivered, but they needed God's principles because they needed to show the world what it looks like to walk with God and to be loyal to God. So they needed that. And they also needed God's presence. They needed his law and they needed his presence. 
And that's right where they are. And Israel's at the base of the mountain, kind of basking in the overflow of a wonderful wedding. And then suddenly, chapter 32, and, and, and it hits us like a sudden, sharp blast of cold air. Israel does the, the worst thing imaginable. Up until now, they've been chumps. They grumble, they complain. But they take it to a whole new level here. They do something that is disgusting and grotesque. They commit adultery on their honeymoon in the very spot where they gave their vow to God. And if you've ever been married, and if you can imagine your spouse or you going back to the wedding venue and committing adultery on your honeymoon, that's what happened. It's, it's terrible. Now make no mistake, this is the fall of Israel. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel suddenly and surprisingly gives into the temptation to doubt God's goodness, to disbelieve his word, and to disobey his instructions. Six verses in Genesis 3 tell the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. Six verses in Exodus 32 tell the story of the fall of Israel. Now, over and over, as you keep reading the Bible, this becomes a, a foundational moment. It keeps getting referred to through all of these pages that come next. In Israel's prayers and praises, they're filled with references to this event, this horrendous act. The great prophets and the storytellers of Israel, the musicians and the poets and the historians, they fill the pages of Scripture with repeated references to this awful betrayal of God by Israel on her honeymoon. It becomes a foundational moment in scripture. And when you get to the New Testament, it gets picked up. Even there, over and over, it gets referred back to how Israel had experienced the remarkable redemptive blessings of God and then squandered them by giving herself away, by giving her love and her loyalty to another God. Israel exchanged the presence and the guidance and the authority of the living God for this little cow that they made that doesn't have any life in it. Now, we need to stop right here because there's a danger that you and I are missing the point. You see, for most of us, the word idolatry conjures up images of people bowing down before statues. And so we can look at this and say, Israel, gross, stupid. Why would you do that? Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, God says about the elders of Israel. These men have set up their idols in their own hearts. You see, it doesn't take a statue to make an idol. Idolatry can happen in a heart. Idolatry doesn't have to have a statue and people bowing down to it for it to occur. 
In scripture, God shows us that idolatry occurs not just in moments like that, but it occurs when we take good things like a successful career or love or the respect of our children or our parents or our friends or family or material possessions and we turn it into an ultimate good. When, when things that are good become the center of our lives and they give us our significance, our security, our safety, our fulfillment, they have become an idol. And when you read through scripture, this comes up over and over and over because the heart of a human is an idol factory. An idol is something that you can't live without. We've got to have it. It drives us to break rules we once honored, right? Israel really did mean it when they said to God, we will listen and obey everything. You, they, they meant that and they believed that. They really did give their love and loyalty to, king, to the king. So why did they suddenly not do it? For the same reason you've broken your own standards. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy when something suddenly becomes so important that rules and standards you once held now can be broken. That's what idols do to us. See, we tend to think of idols as bad things, but they almost never are. They almost always are good things. Idols are good things that... that suddenly become the thing, the thing that can satisfy our deepest needs and our, our greatest hope. Anything can become an idol, especially the best things. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give you. One of the ways I've discovered idols in my own heart is by paying attention to my despairs. The, the, the um, possible loss of something that drives me into a darkness I can't see my way out of. Sometimes that's an indicator that I have accidentally given something kind of the meaning and the power that only God should have in my life. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments begin with the command against idolatry because idolatry is the gateway drug to all sin. We rarely ever break another commandment without first breaking the first commandment. If anything becomes more important to your happiness than God and his ways and his will, then most likely that thing has become an idol. If anything becomes more significant for a meaningful life than God 
and his ways and his will, then very likely you've got an idol. If anything becomes more important to your identity than God and his way and his wills, then perhaps you're dealing with an idol. God is, he, he asked to be our only true spouse, but when we desire and delight in other things more than God, we commit spiritual adultery. We take false lovers that promise to make us feel loved and valued. Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God and his ways and his will. It's become an idol. What makes you uncontrollably angry or inescapably despairing? or overwhelmingly anxious or despondent? What if you lost it? What would make your life not worth living? Turn those rocks over and very often you find lurking in the shadows an idol. And see, we've got a problem because we've eliminated the category of idol from our language. We only think about some people dressing in less clothes than us, chanting and, and doing weird things and killing babies and bowing down in front of some statue. We let ourselves off the hook for the fundamental issue. We give ourselves a pass. We don't have time to go into it now, but scripture paints the picture of idols coming from four primary places. What entices you? What do you fear? What do you trust? And what do you need? These are the things that generally speaking, these are the gardens where idols grow, the things that entice us, the things that we say, wow, that's amazing. The things we fear, right? Most cultures make idols out of the scary things, the scary creature, right? Think of all the grotesque desk, death masks and things like that. The things we fear, the things we trust, and the things we need. These are the gardens where you need to uncover and pull, turn over stones and look to see if there's an idol in your life. There was this remarkable 17th century English pastor by the name of David Clarkson who said in a sermon, if we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. Now, a few minutes ago, I said we need to stop looking at Exodus 32 because we need to deal with the fact that we are a people of idols. And we need to face up to the fact that just because there's no statue kind of worship thing going on in our society doesn't mean we're not an idolatrous society. The central principle of the Bible is that idolatry is the fundamental human problem. It's not only something Israel dealt with 3,500 years ago, it is common in our day. And perhaps you noticed three times in Exodus 32, idolatry is called a great sin. Why is idolatry so terrible that all the other goofy things Israel's done up to chapter 32, none of them are called a great sin? This is the first time something they do is called a sin. And it's called a great sin. What's so terrible about idolatry? A couple of things. First of all, it's dumb. It's foolish. It's terribly foolish. Israel went looking for a God to do what Yahweh had been doing. Oh, they said, look, Yahweh's up there. He's scary. And Moses is gone. And we need help. We're out here in the wilderness all by ourselves. We need something to lead us. And so they made something 
that was lifeless and looked at it and said, that's going to lead us. And it's just as dumb for you and me to look at a relationship and say, a relationship is big enough to fill my soul. Your soul is cavernous. It's the size of the Grand Canyon. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, when it tries to describe skull, the soul, it, it uses the word olam. It says it's like eternity. It's as big as the cosmos. And I look at Janelle and think Janelle can fill, expand to fill up my heart, my aching heart. That's crushing. That's ridiculous. You think career can do that? You think pleasure can do that? It's foolish. It's, look at them and laugh at them. <laughs> and then laugh at yourself. Whenever you think anything can put you to rest like God can. The only thing you can count on with an idol is that it's going to fail. Idols never fail to fail. That's the only true thing there is to say about them. The golden calf couldn't do what Israel wanted it to do. Idolatry is not only a great sin because it's a great stupidity. It's also a great sin because it is wicked. It's wicked. Remember, we've seen that idolatry is spiritual adultery. You're supposed to read Exodus 32 and, and sit in judgment on Israel for being so vile. You're supposed to think about your own adulterous affair of your spouse or your spouse's affair against you or a friend you've seen going through that. You're supposed to imagine an affair on a wedding night and feel that about your own idolatry. It's that wicked. It's betrayal. It's disloyalty. We don't, we don't feel this anymore. In fact, we've taken the word idol in America and we use it for fun things, American Idol. And like, we joke about this. We, we, we've lost the capacity to analyze our own lives through the category of idolatry. And because of that, we miss out on a fundamental category in scripture of the fundamental problem with humans. And this leads to the second reason it's so wicked. It's wicked because it leads to a whole catalog of vices and viciousness. It pollutes every aspect of human life. Look at verse 6. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink. Up until that moment, it's a repeat of what had happened with Yahweh in chapter 24. And then the next word, and they rose up to play. And that's a tepid translation. They rose up to an orgy. It was an affair. They did terrible things. Verse 7 says they corrupted themselves. In verse 25, it says they broke loose. They end up breaking at least four of the commandments. It just catalogs into all this stuff. It seems that they go from idol worship to all of these terrible things. Another reason it's wicked is because it's so ungrateful. Right? I mean, just translate all this into human terms. Suppose you rescued somebody. Suppose you helped somebody live. And then you said to them, 
let's get married. And they said, yes, I would love to. And then they did this. How ungrateful. Remember, God is the one who delivered them. It's also wicked because it deprives God of his glory. It's wicked because it's, it threatens God's mission. Verse 25 says it leads to the derision of his enemies. You see, the whole deal was God delivered Israel to himself for the sake of the world. God had put all his chips into redeeming the world and delivering the world and healing the world as far as the curse is found and taking away all the pain and all the suffering of the world. God decided to do that through this relationship with Israel, by marrying himself to Israel, Israel learning to, to reveal him to the world. And by doing this, they threatened that mission. And that's wicked because God's trying to save the world. He's trying to deliver the world from death and disease and darkness and despair. And when we act in these ungrateful ways and give our hearts to idolatry, we are putting a stop to that, resisting that. So when we face up to the full truth and viciousness of what idolatry is and what it does, that it's vile and damaging, that when you trust something else, when you love something else more than God, it is vile, it is damaging. When we face up to that, it makes sense now why God burned with wrath. He's trying to save the world and you're fighting against it. He's trying to save you and you're ungrateful. You made a vow and you, and you break it. If your spouse has had an affair, it is legitimate for you to burn with wrath. It's even more legitimate for God in this scenario. So it makes sense of his wrath. And this is why the Bible tells us over and over and over, at all cost, avoid idolatry. So why don't we? <laughs> why are, I mean, think about it. The irony here is that this room is filled with people who I know love Jesus. And you're so grateful to him. And we keep committing idolatry. And this is really what it is that we do. We give our hearts away. I mean, we commit adultery. Why? Why do we, why, if it's so foolish and so wicked and so dangerous, why do we keep doing it? Well, again, look, Exodus 32 is the foundational story in the Bible for coming to understand idolatry. And it shows us why we are so easily tempted, why we do it. Look at verse 1, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together against Aaron and said to him, oh, make us gods who will go before us. <laughs> Israel were slaves. They were slaves. They didn't know how to get out of Egypt. They didn't know how to organize themselves. They didn't know how to feed themselves, take care of themselves. After centuries of being slaves, slavery had entered deep. They were slavish people. And here is God using Moses and he delivers them. And every time they meet a danger or have a need, God through Moses fixes it. And then Moses goes up on this mountain. And remember back in chapter 24 and chapter 19, the mountain, the top of it is covered in smoke and flame and lightning. And there's an earthquake that shakes the whole mountain. And they're at the bottom of it. And holy cow, Moses went up there. And then the next day he doesn't come down. Or the next day. Or the third day. 
or the fourth day or the fifth day? How long would it take for you if your best friend, your child, or your spouse didn't come back? So they thought either he is dead, consumed in the power of God, or he left us. <laughs> and so they say, we can't make it. We've, we've got to have a God and we've been abandoned. See, fear drives us to idolatry. They were afraid. And I can totally sympathize with them because my fear has driven me to idolatry multiple times in my life. Have I been afraid of something not happening or happening? And so in order to avoid that fear, I stepped off of the path of God's ways and God's will. Another thing that drives them to idolatry is impatience. Like you and like me, 40 days was a long time to wait for a thing. You know, one of the ways to uncover idolatry in your life is to look at something you've prayed desperately for, and if it doesn't happen, when you turn on God. When you get so impatient that you just choose another way. A third reason I think that we end up being idolaters, and I think you can see it here, is discontent. We grow discontent with the demands that come along with an exclusive loyalty to God. I mean, think about these Ten Commandments. Do I really have to not lie? It's so handy. Is it really wrong of me to covet something somebody else has? I mean, come on now. And I think it's quite common for us to move to idolatry because we long for a less demanding God. Because we want to eat and drink and indulge in revelry. And we might call it some sophisticated form of, well, I think there's like a, that's culturally like a, you know, not sophisticated like we are today. We know better now. All right, so what do we do about it? What do we do about our idol factories of our hearts? Well, one of the things we've got to do in the scripture, three things, and I'll finish with these. The first one is we have to uncover our idols. We have to uncover, we have to recover the capacity to recognize some of our sin is actually idolatry. It's worse than just tripping up. Now, how do we do that? Well, what has just happened? I bet there are people in this room who've suddenly realized or thought to themselves, you know, maybe that overwhelming anxiety I experience or that despair or the reason I did that. I suspect there are people in this room who over the last few minutes have begun to reflect on areas of their life that they had never attached the, the word idol to. You know how that happened? by reflecting together on scripture. The way to uncover idols, a key way is to soak yourself in the Bible. Look, when God's people lose the knowledge of God's word or interest in God's word, other gods are gonna fill the vacuum. Resisting idolatry requires serious Bible reading and a lively commitment to learning scripture because scripture can expose our idols. 
We have to expose them. You have to learn to let the categories of the Bible dissect, diagnose your life more than the categories of contemporary society. And that only happens if you soak yourself in scripture. A second thing that we see is going on here in order to deal with idols is that we have to face up to the full truth about how grotesque they are, how bad they are, that they are vile and damaging. Notice something. You can trace your way through Exodus chapter 32 by paying attention to the verb see. The people saw that Moses was gone, so they said, make an idol. Verse one, verse five, Aaron saw, he saw the idol. Verse nine, and he said, hey, let's have a party. Verse nine, the Lord sees and his anger burns. Moses responds like, God, don't be so mad. Then Moses goes down the mountain and notice verse 19. And when he saw, he burned hot with anger. See, prior to night, verse 19, Moses was like a lot of us with ourselves and our friends. He was like, Aubrey, come on, dude. You sound to me like Jonathan Edwards or some freakish Puritan. Like, what are you, a fundamentalist? Really now? That's what Moses was doing. But then when he saw it, same verb used of him as of God, his anger burned hot. We've got to get to that place. We've got to get to the place where we not only see our idol, but we see it for what it is. And number three, we need atonement. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. He comes back to God. You were right. This is bad. And he says, if you will not forgive their sin, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book. You know what Moses is doing? He's saying, they're in trouble. And it's so bad Justice won't solve it. They need forgiveness. And he said, God, if, if, if forgiveness can't just happen, take me. Take my life. Maybe that will pay the price. Four times in 32 and 33, Moses intercedes for the people. Every time God gives him what he asked for, except this time. It's a mystery that goes unanswered. Why doesn't God take Moses up on this offer when he took him up on every other offer? And it's a mystery that's not answered until we get to the New Testament. When Jesus Christ comes along and he goes up on a mountain and delivers God's law to God's people and he feeds God's people in the wilderness and suddenly when you've soaked yourself in scripture, you see it's Moses again. And this time, when the new Moses, when the better Moses offers to atone for our sins, God accepts it. 
Moses wasn't good enough. He was amazing, but he wasn't good enough. And we need that. We need something. We need our sin atoned for. You don't get to just, because you think sin's not a big deal, that's just not the way the universe works. If you jump off the Empire State Building and you don't think you're going to, that's not going to affect the end of it, what you think. Sin is gross. It's disgusting. It's vile. Idolatry requires atonement. And God amazingly sent his only son to die for our sins, to die for our idolatry, so that whoever would turn to him in belief would be forgiven. So you see your adultery, your betrayals, all of your gross idolatry that it was so hard to look at earlier in the sermon because it just feels crushing the weight of it. It is crushing. And Jesus offers to be crushed for you. He offers to be the atonement for your sins. And that's why we're here this Sunday because our hearts are filled with gratitude. Can you believe it? That the creator God would die for us. Mike, he would die for you and Susanna and me and all of us. And so we've come here this morning to be grateful and to rejoice and to remember that if you haven't done that. What are you waiting on? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for your word, how it diagnoses and gives us a solution. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand.